For those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Chris Brooks. I'm a Canadian. Um, I, uh, they told me to introduce myself, so I got a, a one-minute clip to do that with. But um, I, this is basically where I was about a dozen years ago in making documentaries. Uh, so I thought I'd let you hear that. And it, I had just come out of working for uh, making current affairs documentaries for a national show for some years. And this, they let me loose on a a sort of a, what was supposed to be a hip new uh, uh, pop culture channel show. And I, this was part of a, the start of a documentary series about the state of Canadian radio. Anyway, this is the kind of thing I was doing back then. Before we start, I might as well be honest with you. I don't work for a radio station where they do this. Yo, 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 baby, yo, Tarzan Dan on your radio, it's round number one in showdown, hump to dance, if you want to hump to dance yourself, you get a bump on your rub, huh? No, I work for a radio station where they do this. The beginning of the long dash following 10 seconds of silence will indicate exactly 2.30, 2 o'clock in Labrador. Canadian joke. Just so you know where I'm coming from, okay? If I were Tarzan Dan... I might tell you this story a little differently. Okay, now that's over with, we can start. What is radio? But, uh, anyway, so that's what I was doing then. Um, and I still do some of that, and uh, nowadays I'm, in it. I was, I'm no longer working for that radio station, that, that uh, CBC. I've been an independent producer for about the past 10 years, and uh, I do a bunch of stuff. Mostly I try and do long-form documentary features when I can. And, um, and what, I, what I loved about that, that session this morning was, uh, was the way it, it sort of made me listen uh, and raised some questions about it. So, that's what I'm hoping to do here today, uh, with your permission, is um, I think that, for me anyway, there have been times when it's like I, I hear something, it, it, I th I, my ears, I think most of our ears, you know, we fall into habits. I have a habit of listening to something a certain way. Now, maybe that's a culturally imposed habit, I don't know, from being in North America, or whether it's a personal one, but uh, sometimes it's a... It's a revelation just to sort of have, like, somebody pulled a plug out of my ear and I hear it a bit differently. So this is some things that were, a plug has come out of my ear for me. I don't know whether it will be the same for you or not. You may have uh, figured a lot of this stuff out long before I did. Um, but I can tell you where this sort of process started. And uh, it, was a, it was about 10 years ago. Um, and uh, I was uh, at, uh, in Europe at a, a documentary features conference and... Uh, I, you know, all these big, heavy European producers, and um, uh, so everybody played a piece, and then it's, you know, torn apart afterwards in a discussion. And so I played a piece that was, at that time, I, I, what I thought was the only thing that might possibly resemble a, a radio feature documentary. And uh, so I'll show you the little piece. Uh, this, this is about two minutes long, and th this is the piece that was talked, the section that they talked about afterwards. And it was, um, it's just two people in a bar reading letters and talking about their experience in Africa. It's number three. Before we start, I might as well be honest with you. Sorry. Three. Fly. 
read them over and over like a rosary. I got this letter from Hemdu Hudu, the shoeshine boy who used to hang around point seven. Um, dear sir, I would be very glad to write you this, my humble letter. So, and I also wrote you my humble letter, and even I was put my picture on the letter. And still up to now, I haven't seen your letter again. So I am very sadly because of that. What's this one? Dear Mackie, <laughs> how are you? Hope your journey back is fair. I can express my feeling by the day you left. I didn't, didn't feel happy throughout. I, fe I really feel you're absent. Especially when I went to work. I was the one you give the address. So I want you to remember about me. But some people destroy point seven. So this time point seven have not get minerals. You have the store empty so since I'm you left, madam. The whole family can never stop thinking of you. Really. Okay, so um, after uh, it played for it was a forty minute piece and and uh, this lovely French man from Paris, you know up his hand and said, uh, he said, this, uh, this moment, he said, whereas you have the voices and they start and then they fade and the other ones, they fade over and you have the fade and they fade. He said, uh, in your country, in Canada, they do this, this very common. And I thought, of course, I was going to get, you know, a stroke. And I said, yeah, sure. I said, you know, with overlaying of voices, yeah, yeah, we, we use that sort of, you know, montage, just fades quite a bit. <laughs> And he, there was this long, but silent pause. And he looked so sorry for me. I always remember his face. And he said, he said, uh, well, he said, I'm sorry. But for me, he said, it is as if you open the door and you invite someone to come in. And they come in and they start to speak. And then you close the door and then, and then you open another door. And you close the door on them. And, and at the time, I thought, well, you know, that may be how you listen in France, you know. But uh, I'm a North American, and I'm sorry, you know, our listeners are quicker than that. And, but I have to say that I, it sank into me afterwards. I, I never, nobody had ever asked that question of my ears before. And I don't think I've ever done that, faded a, a voice down in that way ever again. Because now I hear it that way. I'd never heard it that way. It had never occurred to me. You know, I'd I'd never asked myself that question. So, and these days when I do do it, and I don't think I've ever done it, maybe I have, but I certainly think long and hard about it, <laughs> you know? And actually what I found is it's kind of interesting. How do you get somebody off stage? You know, you, <laughs> you have a character in your documentary. You can't, if you're not going to fade them down, they don't stop talking. How do you get them off stage? But uh, there are some interesting other possibilities maybe when you, just don't take it for granted that you're going to fade him. So anyway, that's what I, I, some, some of the things I'd like to play for you now, is things like that, that um, I don't know if they're right or wrong, but I think it's important to ask questions and to kind of think about, about it, about the pattern of how our ears hear things. Um, particularly in the context of, a lot of what I want to talk about is sound, uh, because I think my ears are very attuned to story, being a North American and not so attuned to sound, perhaps. Uh, and it was interesting to hear Walter Murch this morning on a lot of this. Um, let me tr give you something that I heard um, the first couple of times, first few times I heard it, I, I just heard it as an old archival recording, which is what it is. Uh, it's uh, from 1936. 
I think it's the, the it's supposed to be the first live news broadcast on scene in radio history. Uh, it was uh, in the day, this, what you'll hear is a disc recording of it. It was um, a mining disaster in Nova Scotia, a place called M Moose River, and uh, a man named Frank Willis was sent there by the precursor to the CBC in those days. It was called the Canadian Radio Broadcasting Commission, I think. Um, so this is very early days, and uh, he went on air for, I think it was 65 hours uh, straight. He he, what he would do, he would do a, a, a four to five minute report every half hour on the half hour for that whole period. So I guess he didn't get much sleep, and um, and it was a big deal. It was uh, it was all the stations in Canada took it. A, a lot of stations in the states took it. Apparently, it was a very big deal because it was. A disaster. Uh, some men were trapped in a mine. And uh, in fact, apparently he made these reports over the phone and there were all party lines in those days. So apparently before he managed to do any of this, he had to convince everybody else on the party line not to pick up the phone because otherwise the signal strength wouldn't be enough to get back to wherever, I guess, the station that was, that was broadcasting it. Um, okay, so this is about three minutes long and uh, I'll play it for you. Then I'll, I'll tell you what it, how it seemed to me. Number two. Herman McGill is dead. Two others, Dr. D. E. Robertson and Albert Scaddings of Toronto, Ontario, are still in the depths of Moose River mines late this afternoon. They can hang on for eight or ten hours more. But that won't be necessary, we don't think. The latest word sent up through the pipeline, which has been sunk into the pit by a diamond drill, brings word from the men below that they can hear tappings. They can hear the men in the workings breaking down the rock to get through to them. It is a broken country down here, drab and desolate, almost impenetrable from the outside world. You come in over roads, almost impassable. A country of scrub and second growth, of rock. Rock, relentless, hard, cruel hard. It is against rock of this sort that miners for the past week have fought and fought, grim-lipped, determined, every hour, every minute, risking their lives a thousand times, an hour, a minute, in this satanic battle to save the lives of two Toronto men. And they're winning their fight. Inch by inch, the rock is retreating. But another force, sinister and relentless, is creeping up from behind to possibly snatch a hard-earned victory from these gallant men who have worked so long and so well. We cannot describe to you very well in a, in a few moments the anguish, the mental anguish and the suffering that these men have gone through in the past few, or the past week rather, the past eight days, that's the length of time they've been in prison there, but you followed that all in the press. And it is this water seeping, creeping slowly through a thousand fissures and the crushed and broken walls of the mine that now sends us the greatest warning. The water is rising. Scant, scarce audible reports from the two surviving men tell us of this menace, creeping ever closer, making that cramped, dank eight-day tomb even smaller, more cramped, more unbearable. We will not attempt to paint a word picture of the conditions underground in which these men have miraculously lived for these past eight days. We leave that to your own imagination. The torture of doubt, 
the calvary of mental and physical anguish, the nerve-destroying sound of dripping water, the rattle and splash of falling rock chips in their prison as another gigantic charge of dynamite is set off to get to them. What must have been the strain, the agony of this past week? You can imagine. It proved too much for McGill. He lies dead below there. Perhaps mercifully. Perhaps spared for more hours. Hoping, listening, praying. But we think not. We believe now that it is possible. But we can say. Okay. Um... Uh, and forgive me if it just seems pedantic because I, probably many of you may have picked up on what I didn't pick up on the first few times I heard this. I, I heard this on a, as an old archival recording. Um, and, uh, you know, this is the days before tape, uh, the days before anything except disc recording, which must have been difficult anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, the, people didn't use sound in there. There's no idea of using sound the way we do. So, I mean, uh, the language is very in the 1930s. It's particularly florid. But uh, it, it occurred to me when I listened to it, and I, I'm going to ask you to bear with me. Maybe you listen to it one more time. Um, if you, I mean, there are a lot of ways of telling a story. There are a million ways of telling a story. And I think the important question I've always wondered is, how do we tell a story? But what makes, what makes a, a story, some stories, more compelling than others? And... Uh, so I wonder if some of the idea, of the answer to that maybe is in this piece, or at least the question is in this piece. If you think of it as a film, if you listen to it as a film, you'll notice what you get, first of all, is a close-up. You get a dead man's face. It's a close-up on the dead. Simon McGill is dead. Boom. Um, and then he, you'll notice he pulls back to a medium shot. He tells you, this guy's in a mine. There are three other men with him. And you say, you, that's your medium shot, right? Three guys. They're still alive with a dead man. Um, then he, a little, moments later, he takes you above ground and he gives you a sort of a long panning shot. If you notice, he, he describes to you the landscape, the place where this is. He says it's hard to get into, dirt roads. He says it's desolate. I mean, he's using these words to paint the picture. It's desolate. It's hard. And it's hard rock. And it's not just any rock, but it's, it's a cruel, hard rock, right? So it's very rocky. By which, he's, at which point, then, he starts his dramaturgy, I, I think. I, I realized, after a while listening to this, I think that's what he does. I think he sets up two characters. One is the rock, the cruel, hard rock, right? And the, the rescuers, right? We'll call them the men, I don't know, but you've got this, and you, you've got... You've you got a protagonist and an antagonist, if you like, and you've got a struggle going back and forth. Who's going to win? Are the guys going to get out of the mine or not? Is the rock going to crush them? They seem to be winning. The rescuers seem to be winning, he says. Then he complicates the dramaturgy. But there's a third character, water, that's coming in. So there's, like a, there's a car chase going on here, but they tore up the road. On the, you know, it's like there's another force happening here. So, you know, I think his design was to crank the tension. Um, uh, then he says, let me just see here, listen to it then. What else does he say? Uh, well, he got, then he goes on to that lovely line that I've loved about how I will not, uh, we will not attempt to describe <laughs> the scene down below. Then he goes on to describe it, and he says, but you can imagine. And then you'll notice 
as he describes it, he's, he's, using, he's describing sounds, is what he's describing. Anyway, if, if you don't mind, I, I thought I'd ask you to listen to it one more time with, with this in mind, because I think what he's doing is he's deliberately chosen a, 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 a dramatic structure to tell a story by, and I, uh, it's an interesting question to ask if we should be doing that. Here he is again. Herman McGill is dead. dead Two others, Dr. D.E. Robertson and Albert Scaddings of Toronto, Ontario, are still in the depths of Moose River Mines. Medium shot. Late this afternoon. They can hang on for eight or ten hours more, but that won't be necessary, we don't think. The latest word sent up through the pipeline, which has been sunk into the pit by a diamond drill, brings word from the men below that they can hear tappings. They can hear the men in the workings breaking down the rock to get through to them. It is a broken country down here, drab and desolate, almost impenetrable from the outside world. You come in over roads, almost impossible. A country of scrub and second growth, of rock. Rock, relentless, hard, cruel hard. It is against rock of this sort that miners for the past week have fought and fought, grim-lipped, determined, every hour, every minute, risking their lives a thousand times, an hour, a minute, in this satanic battle to save the lives of two Toronto men. And they're winning their fight. Inch by inch, the rock is retreating. But another force, sinister and relentless, is creeping up from behind to possibly snatch a hard-earned victory from these gallant men who have worked so long and so well. We cannot describe to you very well in a, in a few moments the anguish, the mental anguish and the suffering that these men have gone through in the past few, or the past week rather, the past eight days, that's the length of time they've been in prison there, but you followed that all in the press. And it is this water seeping, creeping slowly through a thousand fissures and the crushed and broken walls of the mine that now sends us the greatest warning. The water is rising. Scant, scarce audible reports from the two surviving men tell us of this menace, creeping ever closer, making that cramped, dank eight-day tomb even smaller, more cramped, more unbearable. We will not attempt to paint a word picture of the conditions underground in which these men have miraculously lived for these past eight days. We leave that to your own imagination. The torture of doubt, the calvary of mental and physical anguish, the nerve-destroying sound of dripping water, the rattle and splash of falling rock chips in their prison as another gigantic charge of dynamite is set off to get to them. What must have been the strain, the agony of this past week? Anyway, I'll... You, you get you get the idea. I mean, I, I picture this guy sitting for, you know, half an hour, ready, getting ready to make his next report and thinking, how am I going to tell a story? That's how he chose to tell it. Chris, do you think he was reading copy? It sounded like a lot of it was improvised, like a thousand times an hour, a minute. Yeah, I, I get, it's almost like he's gone from notes or something. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Because it's really well told. Yeah. I don't think he's... He does, yeah, he must have been going for notes. He can't have just been completely winging it. No. Anyway, you know, the, so I, it, I think it's interesting that it's old radio, but it's interesting. I, I, the first time I heard this, I, I didn't hear that. It, it took me several times through before I, I realized, oh, 
So, okay, so I mean, it's a question. How do we tell stories? Um, I'm just going to barrel through this stuff because we started late, but please stop me and, and argue and ask questions <laughs> if you want. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And uh, that's a question. Do we not do that in documentary features? Or, 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 or do we? Good question. That's such a different structure from the way we write you know, straight news stories as well. Mm -hmm. Because like, if I can't this, the guy who's training me how to write copies, oh. bury the lead. Well, <laughs> you know? oh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, but, but I mean... I mean, you know, in general, uh, journalistic writing, like newspaper writing, you know, it's 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 the uh, it's, it's this sort of thing, right? It's the inverted triangle, isn't it? It's like you know, they give 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 the basic information up top, and then get give more details down here, and and so that if your editor is going to cut you, then you, you you've still got the first few paragraphs. But if Agatha Christie was going to tell you a story, mystery story, I mean, she wouldn't tell you in the beginning the butler did it in the kitchen with a steak knife. <laughs> I mean, you'd never listen to the rest of the story, so it's not much of a story. That, it, that's a fact. It's not a story, in a sense. But, so I think stories are, are this way around. Anyway, yeah. um, the, 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 what I was thinking of this morning in, in that session was um, uh, I, I read the, well, the Conversations, which is the book that's out there on, on the, the book uh, table um, this summer. It's the com Conversations between Michael Ondaatje and Walter Merchant. It's a great book, if you haven't. If you haven't read it, it's, uh, I don't get any royalties from it. But I went out and I rented some of the movies, and it talks about some of the, the things that he was talking about this morning. But one of the things he says in the book that he belabors for several pages, and I'm, I'm probably making a mishmash of it here, but he talks about how he feels it's important in films to, to pull the viewer in, to not give the viewer all the information. Uh, so to make them work to imaginatively enter into the film so that your film that actually is a bit different from your film and that if we you know plug all the holes that won't happen um, and I reading it was thinking you know in radio surely we have a great advantage because we don't have the picture I mean we if we do this right we give people the cues to make their own picture and then that picture is on a very big screen indeed. I mean, it's like projected a movie on the listener's screen of the listener's mind. And that's a very individual thing. And it's extremely vibrant because it's my picture, which is not the same as yours. And it's, it's a real sense of investment and ownership. Anyway, um, I thought I would play you something that, uh, that Larry Josephson mentioned yesterday. It's, it's uh, the beginning of uh, one of these classic, you know, European classic documentaries called Bells in Europe, he mentioned. It was made... Oh, 30, 33 years ago, I think, about 1971, 70, by a man named Leo Brown for Radio Free Berlin. And uh, it go, it's about a 40, 50-minute documentary. And uh, I'll play the first, I think it's eight or nine minutes. And uh, actually, what, you're here, what you'll hear is, because, of course, the original was made in German, um, this is uh, a, an English-language translation that was done in the mid-'70s by a producer named John Reeves at CBC. And what it basically is, is the, it's all the, the bed tracks and mix from the original. It's just the, the narrator's uh, voice has been replaced by an English narrator. So I'll play the first uh, eight or ten minutes of this, if I can find the one. It's number five. two in the morning. The 
first copper ingot was fed into the furnace. And more, and more down that flaming belly. Together with the tin, 7,500 weight. Bell metal, bronze. The moment's arrived. The red brew has turned yellowish white. 1120 degrees. 16 bells will be cast this morning. No one has ever witnessed the birth of a bell. That happens down below, in the ground. The 16 molds are dug in, in front of the furnace. The earth is pressed down tight to prevent the molds cracking under the pressure of the molten metal. There is always silence before the cast. A tense silence. The peasants from the Frisian village, which is to get three of the new bells, take off their hats. Their minister is folding his hands to say grace first. It is as it has always been. Wir beten, Allmächtiger Gott, du Schöpfer aller guten und vollkommenen Gaben, der du den Menschen die Kunst verliehen hast, aus dem Erz der Erde Glocken zu gießen, Wir bitten dich um deine Gnade, dass die neuen Glocken, die hier heute gegossen werden, gut gelingen und alle Zeit deine Ehre verkündigen und deine in Christo Jesu erlöste Gemeinde zum Gottesdienst rufen mögen. Amen. Fangen wir in Gottes Namen an. One can only hear the birth of a bell when, reluctant and heavy, the bronze bubbles from the furnace, a blazing mire crackling through the feeder pipes until it sears its way into the dug-in molds so that the air escapes with a hissing sound.
invented because it was vital for man to give alarm of danger quicker than he could run and spread it further than his own voice would carry. Fire, storm, flood, attack, flight. clerk calling for assemblies, church services, and tooling the time. It announces a wedding, or a christening, or a death. A bell is music. It sings the feasts, glorifies God, and jubilates over peace. the Nazi regime coldly gives orders that to safeguard the reserves of metal for a long-term conduct of war, all German church bells must be handed over to the armament industry. Copper and tin are strategic metals. Natural resources on German territory are negligible. Hermann Goering's intentions are that only ten bells are to be preserved in the whole of Germany. The church authorities secure as a final concession the preservation of five percent. Total loss, 47,000 bells. Brass cartridges for grenades and machine gun ammunition. Copper for the axle bearings of heavy engines. The aircraft industry has a continuous demand for tin. And the German war machine, that armored colossus, rolls slowly across Europe. The German bells no longer suffice. Poland delivers up bells. Czechoslovakia. Holland. Belgium. France. Italy. Austria. Hungary. 33,000 bells for the German arms industry. At the end of the war, the silence in Europe is that of the graveyard. Altogether, 80,000 bells are missing. In the church towers, there often hangs but one bell. 
the smallest one, the passing bell. From the small cemetery outside the Hungarian town of Sopron, the passing bell tolls for old Laszlo Bozo, dead for three days. It tolls to say the priest has just left the house of the gravedigger and is now going towards the chapel. sitting, the friends standing, a coffin decked with gold, flowers, burning candles. All over Europe, in every language, this closing scene is the same for everybody. And it goes on for about another, you know, 35, 40 minutes. Um, that's one of the sort of classics of European documentary features. And uh, when I heard it, I don't know about you, when I, when I heard it anyway, I, I, I had to ask myself the question, maybe I've been taking my sound a little too much for granted, I don't know. I mean, he, I'd had, I think I'd, I had tended to think of uh, sound as a sort of scene setter, you know, and that kind of thinking. But whatever he's doing in there, it's, it's not exactly, it's, not, it's another dimension that, that uh, up to that point I hadn't sort of, re uh, my ears hadn't quite asked myself that question. I mean, I, I, it's, it, it has this, to me, it has this big majestic sweep, which is extraordinary. It, I noticed that structurally he's sort of he's going from birth to death already, you know. He births a bell and he kills it off. And um, one of the things I love is that wonderful, there's a foreshadow, for me, there's a, in the sound, or for, for, there's, a, there's a huge scene of sound. I mean, how long does that go on, that, that first one? I don't know. Um, and then there's this wonderful foreshadowing of something ominous is going to happen with the discordant bells. Uh, apparently, I asked him once how he did that. He said he was, it was analog tape. He had several machines running. He put his hand on, uh, on the reels, you know, to slow them down to get that discordant sound. Um, anyway, I, I, don't know, I don't know if this is the way German ears hear sound or whether it's just Leo Brown's ears. Uh, I, first, I, I do know, it seems to me, I've heard a lot of German documentaries where this is the narrator, and you speak like this, and it's, to me, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit sort of like, you know, sit down, listen, this will be good, you know, <laughs> sound, yeah, no. It's a bit, but, but I, I, I've learned that German uh, ears don't, don't hear that as anything particularly out of the ordinary. Um, <laughs> I, I don't mean that as a political comment, but, you know, I, I think they're just more used to that in their radio, and to me, it's a bit... Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to me, it's odd to, to use an actor uh, rather than a, the program maker. But on the other hand, I mean, I notice in the States a lot, well, it, not so much in Canada, there's a tendency sometimes to use big-name actors to, to front a piece, you know? Anyway, yeah. Show, but that's the way, that's the way a lot of feature production, long format, mm -hmm. production 
On the other hand, sometimes you get this wonderfully careful and deliberate use of sound in, in very careful ways, you know. Uh, and again, something about fades, too, actually, that somebody pointed out yesterday, and I think it's really quite true about it, if you notice sort of, sort of the energy of the piece, the, 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 the arc, really, of it. I mean, it, he, he sort of builds it, and, it and he gets it up here, and then it doesn't go down and start again. I mean, he, he builds it up to the birth of Bell, and it takes off from there, and it moves on, and he, he, he goes through the armament industry, and, and you know, it, he kind of, like, builds and then jumps to the next, the next scene at the top of that build, which is kind of interesting. And he does, it, there, it's not, not by a fade. <laughs> Yeah, there's something about the way, something about the way the ear falls into things. I don't know. Uh, shall I go on? I, I've got a, a wonky piece I want. Oh, I'd, I, shan't, I won't say it's wonky. Uh, this is a fi this is a finished piece, and uh, I don't know what you'll think of it. I didn't know what I thought of it quite when I first heard it, and um, it's by a Finnish feature maker called Harry Hutamaki. I heard it at a conference, and he was there and uh, asked him about it afterwards. And this is just the first, I don't know, six minutes or so, I think. Um, it's a piece called Southern Black Comfort. He made it uh, about 10 years ago. And um, it was, I think, Harry's attempt to sort of, uh, Harry's view, uh, Harry's trip to the USA, I think is kind of what it was. This is Harry Hutamaki's how he sees the US, I think. Um, so I'll play you the first, uh, I think it's about six minutes. Where are we here? Number four. Mm. Warning. Paroitus. The objects in this acoustic mirror may be closer than they sound. Amerikka on ainoa tällä hetkellä olemassa oleva primitiivinen yhteiskunta, se elää jatkuvassa nykyisyydessä. Sillä ei ole menneisyyttä eikä kykyä pohtia sitä. Se on tulevaisuuden primitiivinen yhteiskunta. Lumoava. Uskonto, moraali, laki ja rahat ovat kaikki yhtä ja samaa. Vain tässä ja nyt. day of the rest of your life. Huominen on koko loppuelämäsi ensimmäinen päivä. 
This is the theory of the American dream. Amerikkalaisen unelman teoria on tämä. Lensi 300 vuotta sitten Englannista Amerikkaan, kuten moni muukin laulu. Appalakian vuoristossa se säilyi, kuten moni muukin kansanlaulu. Kuku on käki tai nuori nätti tyttö. Amerikassa voi vapaasti valita. Tyttö tai käki. She's pretty bird. Hän on nätti lintu. She wobbles. Hän keinuu. As she flies. Kun hän lentää.
yhteisöt rakennettiin aavikolla ja järjestyksen puolustamista niissä ajateltiin ennen muuta kulttuurin puolustamisena luontoa vastaan. Anyway, um, it goes on. That's the beginning of the program. Um, maybe I'll, I'll just throw out some of the questions that it raised for me in my, some of the questions it asked of my ears. And we can talk about it a bit. I, uh, I wasn't sure what I thought when I first heard this. I'm not sure what I think about it now, actually. But I, one of the things that I, it made me think about when I first heard it was that compared to my work, um, I felt like I would, I'd been making roadmaps you know, sort of relatively two-dimensional things that fold out and you can find your way around them. Um, and the listener can find their way around. And I, I, I realized that it seemed to me that I don't think there's a road map. I, I mean, I, I, it's a, maybe it's a map of the topography or maybe it's a cubist map of, you know, landscape descending a staircase. I, I don't know. But um, obviously he's not, you know, that's what he's interested in doing and to help with the road signs, um, which I thought was, I don't know, I guess I started to ask myself, about road signs and maybe I make too much of road maps. I don't know how much, the question is how much of a road map do we need to give the listener? But I, so that was part of the questions that this raised for me. Um, it, part of the question it also ranged, asked me was the length of some of the sounds. For that instance, the music. I, I, I kept waiting for him to fade the music, fade the music. When is he going to fade the music? The music doesn't get fade, it goes on and on. Fade the music. It's not there. It, the, the music stands up for a long time by itself. I mean, it's kind of a catchy tune for me, but, but um, I, I ask myself whether in... crutch for the ear, whether I bring it in to sort of help listeners along, to float them through this passage and to provide a sense of mood, but that the music is sort of like a subsidiary character, if you like, in the drama. And it's not in, in his view of it, obviously. Music is right up there. We're going to have music, and the music is going to be there. And it, I, I, I ask myself questions about the iconographic use of sounds that he uses, and, uh, which I think, is, I guess, is what he's doing. But one of the things that I really caught my, my ear and asked the question was the the sharpness of his flips, um, you know, uh, that there'll be, he'll go from horse and, horse and wagon, I guess a Western icon, to a gun shot, right? Just like that, bang. And there's that moment where he, he brings in his narration and the sound doesn't fade down. I don't know if you notice it. Suddenly, it drops down about 12 dB and he comes in with his voice. And I, went, I asked him afterwards, I, you know, was that a mistake? I said, you know, that, you know, that it didn't fade? And he looked at me like I was just cretin. <laughs> and he said, no, I said, I'm bored with fades. <laughs> but, I, but the question that, that my ears asked me, me, though, was that, like, I noticed that. Like, I thought, oh, oh mistake. But actually, what was I doing? I mean, I, I, so the question I ask myself is, did, does the ear fall into that, you know? When you do that, does the ear fall into it? Whether I think it's a mistake or whatever it is, uh, but is, and, I, and I wonder about how my ears are designed. I mean, they were designed, what, 50,000 years ago or more, um, to do what? And I guess the question, I, it's like, you know, when you're sitting, I think they're designed to, to detect changes in, in sound. You, if you're sitting in, 
We all know that interviewing somebody in a kitchen and the bloody fridge is on, you know. And you don't notice it until it goes off. Oh, shit, why didn't I unplug the fridge? Or you notice it when it comes on. But while a sound is there, we tend to tune it out. So our ears are built that way. I, I, I ask myself, are, are my ears built that way biologically, physiologically? And so are they instruments that are mostly built to detect changes of sound, that, that the tiger, the twig snap, when the tiger is creeping up behind me after I walk out of my cave, oh, got to run. Maybe that's what they're actually doing. And here we are, you know, many centuries later, millennia later, and still with the same machines strapped to, to my head. So I wonder if that's why my ear falls into that sudden drop in level. And I don't know what that means, but I... I ask myself the question now when I'm dealing with sounds and levels. So. Well, I'm just curious, do you then not no longer use music in that more traditional way of creating food and guiding? Well, I do, yeah. Do you, so you still think that it's okay, it's just getting a little overused? Or? No, I just, I think I don't quite know how to do this. I'm not even sure if I like it. I mean, I still think if the music goes on too long. But for my ears, but, but uh, I, I, I worry a lot more about my use of music. I can tell you that. I sweat over it. I really do. You know, is this music really necessary? Like, what is it doing there behind these voices? Just sitting there, thumping along. Do I really need it? What if I didn't have it there? Would, the vo or would there be a way to make the voices or the other, the other sound work without it? I ask myself, you know. Or if it is there, should it walk in the door sometime? Or, or is it always out in the backyard, just walled off behind the screen door in a sense, you know? I, I don't know what the answers are. I just, like I say, these are just questions that some of these things threw at me. I don't know. <laughs> I, th as I remember, it's about 30 minutes, I think. I don't know. Uh, you could probably email Harry, I guess. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe, actually. Going on and on and on and yeah. on, yeah. And because he throws into there that cuckoo, you know, that cuckoo sound. I think it's a satirical piece. <laughs> so, and that's what I was thinking as the music kept going on and on, and I went, yeah, this is, this is, yeah, this is what I hear, you know, when I step outside or inside. You, you go to anybody's house, they usually yeah. have something glaring. Maybe that's it. Anyway, uh... Some of that 
comes into the expectation we have from the way our ears are conditioned by the time and the place that we're living in. Yeah. And then, to what I mean, as radio makers, uh, do we take the chance to break some of those conventions and therefore get people's attention, or do we turn them off by doing that? Right. You know? That too. So I think you were first. Yeah, I did, and I lost the translation. Uh, it was 10 years ago. But, uh, I don't remember. I think most of it was sort of translated into the English there, but there was some Finnish, obviously, that wasn't. You know, I, yeah. And, and I, that's, I feel so strongly about, because those also are sort of interpretive spaces for the listener or for the viewer. It gives us a moment to, you know, Yeah, actually, which, let me play a different piece then. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because I, I, you're right. I mean, but I think that that assumes that the listener has bought into it, though, that, you're, that you are going to stay there and listen to it. I mean, there, it, there's the possibility the listener has gone on too long and well, buy out of it and they're gone. Spaces, too, about where we're listening and where yeah. we're Let me just play you, I hope we don't go along here, um, but just something you said about, um, about uh, letting things develop, did you say? Or, what is it? Yeah, uh, there's, I, there's a, I've always loved that Japanese concept of the ma, which is, I think, that if I'm probably murdering this concept, but as I understand it, it's, it's the space, it's not so much the things, but the space between things, and it's not so much the sounds, but the space between sounds, not so much the words, but the space between the words, and I, I, I think that there is a certain quality of, a photograph needs to develop in the mind, between things. This is a, uh, just a, person talking, it was made about Rwanda in, when, when was the genocide? 95, 94, I think. Uh, it was a small station. Uh, the person who made this is Dorothy Anger. She's a writer. Uh, what happened was, I'll tell you very, very briefly, it was a small station in St. John's, Newfoundland, that had applied a year before to send a news reporter with the Canadian Peacekeeping Corps somewhere. Nothing happened for a year. In the meantime, Rwanda happened. Suddenly the call came, you can put your reporter with a, a group of peacekeepers going to Rwanda day after tomorrow, can you have them on the, on the plane, there was nobody in the newsroom that had all their shots for, for up for Africa for yellow fever and everything else. The only person that anybody knew of was this writer who had never done journalism in her life. She got put on the plane with a stereo tape recorder. And uh, so this is not your average journalistic report, but it's, I play it for you just because of what you said about, um, I don't know, to me it's like waiting for photographs to develop, the space between things, not so much the words maybe as the space between the words. It looked like when really messy people 
move out of houses. You know? Boxes and bits of broken whatever and, you know, just throw it all outside the door and leave. That's what it looked like from the air. I mean, you just saw, you wouldn't have known from the air that they were bodies. It was just stuff. Yeah. People had their belongings with them, you know, their bags and their living stuff. So they must have been, they must have packed up and had whatever they could carry and been planning to, to flee. It's a, it's a church, a small church, Catholic, I assume. We landed quite close to it, maybe, I don't know, yeah, 100 yards, I'm no good at distance. But we landed and there were a lot of people standing around. I guess they heard us coming. That might be all their families in there, but they're still alive. And what are they going to do? And you won't need the mask really outside, but if you want to have a peek inside the uh, the church or the buildings, you'll probably need it. Uh, and like I said, watch where you step. I mean, there's hands, there's feet, there's skulls, there's uh, legs, uh, Let's stay in one file, too, in case there's any ordinance. We walked a couple of minutes through the woods. Walked carefully the way you do everywhere in Rwanda to make sure you... Stay on the beaten path. Stay away from where there might be landmines. We're at uh, Nitarama. This is the site of a massacre of Stefan. Uh, what is it? Approximately 350 Well, I don't people. know. It's hard to count. Uh, people would, would guess anywhere between 200 and 300 bodies in the church. And uh, anywhere from 50 to 150 outside the church. Everybody can draw their own conclusions, but... Uh, it would seem like some of the people tried to escape this way, uh, the massacre. And if you if you walk through the little forest here, you'll notice that uh, there's uh, there's bodies, uh, parts of bodies. Sometimes you you notice a head here and the legs, uh, the upper body here. So it was obviously very violent, and uh, a lot of children, uh, very young children. Uh, judging by the height and size of my own children, uh, some of these little lads. We're not older than, uh, I would say, two years old. And uh, there's one body over there in that area. Uh, you can see the young lad had a rough time there. He was probably running for it. And somebody with a machete uh, gave him a few blows and uh, did him good. I remember something I read in an article before I went there of uh, Hutu saying this time we're going to kill all the Tutsis. Last time we left the kids alive and this is what we've got now. This time we're going to kill them all. There's a skull over here that you can clearly see that uh, the individual was got blows to the head uh, right over here. There were people that were um, that looked as if they'd been trying to run because they were you know, they were kind of in the trees, so clearly, you know, it, it seemed as if they'd been making a, you know, a run out of the church trying to escape when they were caught. Uh, these bodies aren't completely decomposed yet because they have clothes around it. 
see this skull right here. Uh, well, it would look like to me that uh, that skull had a machete blow on the right side of the head and, you know, actually severed one, one side of the, uh, uh, the head. Uh, these are other skulls here. Uh, you can smell it, eh? Yes, I can. You never forget the smell of death. I guess one of the first bodies that I saw that I could recognize as a body was a, a young girl, little girl, and you could see her leg bones, and I think her head was kind of a few feet away from the rest of her. So she, I, I think that was her. She had been decapitated. That is most probably the. Uh the head of that child, uh, and that skull has a fairly big fracture right on top of it. I, I, I put off kind of going up to the church sort of as long as I could and made sure I had the information on tape. And the people from the village sort of just stood back and watched us, you know. Yeah, it's somebody's leg over there, obviously, still in, in the pants. They were there, that's where they lived, so what they had to worry about was, you know, getting their crops in and getting a new crop in the ground and There's a lot more people that come living. to this now than this clump of hair there. I don't know what it would be like having that right beside you. <clears throat> I guess we, we give them the courage to actually come up here and, and witness for themselves. But what amazes me is that children are exposed to this, this kind of atrocity. I'm sure it's not normal to these people, but I can't imagine having a massacre site like this downtown St. John or downtown Ottawa and people take a Sunday walk to see the massacre. It's incredible. A little boy right here in front of us has got a cut on the, on the forehead. Yeah. Quite large. Well, who knows what happened to that poor boy? At least he's alive, eh? He's alive. The next generation. I I don't know that all of my feelings you know, from start to finish in the place were so jumbled or so... There wasn't time to really feel and to know what you were feeling. I don't think... I don't think I can put it in terms of evil. It's funny. There was a lot of talk about evil. I, I felt I felt confusion and fear and madness. It's right in front of you. It's a very disturbing sight. It looks like there's at least uh, there's at least 500, if not more. But uh, I've never seen anything like this. It's very macabre. It's 
This is enlightening. You don't want to go too too far in there. You don't want to get too close. When I finally went up to the door of the church and looked in, it was just, it's just, there's so many that it's hard to, it's hard to comprehend. You know, in the church, just, I, I don't know how thick they were, I've got no idea. In the entire, the, the entire floor space was covered with people. I made myself go in, I made myself look at it, I made myself smell it. I knew I had to do that. Um, Why did you have to do that? Because I, I had to know it was real. With some stupid little atonement, I guess, for the fact that we were going to be leaving there very soon and the people standing around outside the church watching us <laughs> were watching us take pictures of their relatives. And the question in my mind is this has always been, what if the news reporter had gone? And I would have listened to I mean, I think there are a lot of there's things to be said for and against this approach. But if the news, the person from the newsroom had gone, it would be a very different kind of report. And more interesting question for my ears was that their voice giving the report would have been very different, and it would have been an information would have conveyed information with the words. Whereas, I wonder if this information conveyed between the words, you know, this way. I don't know. Yeah. 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 This this part of it was yeah. Yeah. She did. She wrote the, the final piece. Uh, it sort of jumped back and forth between segments like this, where she just was talking, which was recorded in a darkened room, uh, just getting her to go back into her visually into her memories of it. And then it, there would be, that would be contrasted with sections which she actually wrote, where she was more like, she felt she had to be a news reporter. You know, and it, then she described things, and it was information, and it was political analysis, and then it went back to this. So, but it wasn't the only coverage heard in Canada. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah, no, it was all over the news, as I'm sure it was here. I mean, but, but what you, there, you do, at one point, actually, in the program, later on, she uses that, I think it's Stalin's phrase, wasn't it, that, that, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, one death is a tragedy. Uh, uh, how's it going? You know, uh, a million deaths. A million deaths. One death is a tragedy. A million is a statistic. And and the, the, a lot of what was mostly what we heard on the radio at that time, you know, was un, un, unbelievable. A million people, you know, killed in Rwanda. It, it. It. I think she felt that. I don't know what she felt, but at any rate, I. It's a little closer to the one death is a tragedy thing. Of course, it's a it's a white North American feelings, and I'm not sure if that's at all important when you're dealing with so that many dead people, but... It did display a remarkable inversion of the, of the tasks that actualities and narration usually do. I mean, 
the, uh, the peacekeeper was so detached in his recitation of, uh, of what was being observed and the entire emotional load was, uh, 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 was conveyed by the narrative. At the, at the end, that conceit was broken when I heard the interlocutor, when, 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 the, when the, presumably the news reporter drawing her out is, is on mic asking a follow-up question. But um, the, uh, the effect, I think, to the listener of um, being present at that tour is something that I don't know could be accomplished any other way. In other words, the, the narrator who does the housekeeping, who says this is uh, Captain Joe Smith from the uh, Canadian Peacekeeping Force, and, uh, and, and sets us up for, for that uh, a person to deliver an emotional load. Well, most of us probably don't think of ourselves as um, uniformed military officers conducting peacekeeping campaigns. It's hard to get into that expert's uh, shoes. It's much easier to get into um, an observer's shoes. And so this device seemed to, uh, uh, seemed to work in a very powerful way. I could well imagine myself in, the, uh, in this woman's uh, uh, role of accompanying them. Uh, I thought it was a very uh, unique and powerful narration that way. And then one I haven't heard uh, uh, before that I could feel like a man. In the back? Self-indulgent, the word you're looking for? Is self-indulgent might be the word you're looking for? try and speed this up a little bit just because I because we're running out of time. Thank you. 
Maybe we just take the two questions back there and then we move on. Yeah, that that they, that related actually to something that had been earlier on in the in the program, but 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 it's also a good question. And I, I, it feels funny when it fades there. Yes. No, it was a 50-minute piece altogether. This was about I think uh, it started probably about five or six minutes into the piece. Uh, not a lot. There was a language problem. Uh, for her. But, well, I'm, I'm delighted it raised so many questions, and there are more uh, questions I think that this kind of approach raises. Um, can I have just a quick show of hands? I was, there's two other clips I was going to play. Uh, we've only got time for one, or do you want to stay over time and do both? Over time? Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll cut this one a bit short. This is on the subject of narration, since we're on it. Uh, this is a BBC piece that's a couple of years old. It's called Love Song for the Buses. It's by Sarah Woods and Sarah Conkey. And it's about a man with Asperger's syndrome, which uh, there was an article about this syndrome in Harper's uh, a year or two ago about a guy in New York who had a fascination with subway transportation. Anyway, I'm not sure if the syndrome is always to do with transportation fixations, but this man has a fixation on buses. And I, I don't know, but I suppose that they must have been dealing with, they have this tape with this man, it needs mediation somehow, uh, a narrator, some kind of narrative structure, or some kind of mediation structure between the listener and this tape. What do you do? They could have done a very straight, informative, informational kind of thing. They chose this way of doing the narration. I'll play you a bit. This is off the top. See what you think of it. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Dimitri Alexia, and I live at Pine Trees, a sheltered home for people with Asperger's syndrome, which is a sort of autism. You're going to hear a love song to the buses by Sarah Woods. Open window ledge. You don't enjoy it Hoovering the floor You don't want to do it You have to do your chores Do your chores We have to do our chores Do our chores Polishing the shelf You don't enjoy it Changing the bed You don't want to do it You have to do your chores Do your chores We have to do our chores Do our chores Have to be done, have to be done, 
concentrate. Just concentrate. Whatever I do, I have to concentrate. I have to do my jobs, don't I? We all forget things. I do. Just concentrate on the activities. Concentrate on the activities. Concentrate on the sight reading. Concentrate. At my best garage is Birmingham Central in Liverpool Street. I support all the Birmingham Central routes. All the Birmingham Central routes. And that we've had a lot from Harbin. A lot of routes from Harbin. We've had a lot of Harbin routes. We have, we have, yeah. Well, because Quinton closed. It was too noisy for the residents. And I asked for it to be kept open and they said, sorry, too late. Too late! It was too late, wasn't it? The decision had already been taken and the answer was, it wasn't possible. Finished now. It's finished with now. It's over now. Over now. Central have got the roots now. Concentrate. It's better for Central to have the roots. Concentrate on your chores. They've got their roots, haven't they? And the drivers are still on the route. You have to finish this. I've got work to do. If they say I'm running very late, you've got to accept it, haven't you? I'm running very late. One thing at a time. I have to join in. And I'll continue to join in. Join in. Join! And we have to concentrate on one thing at a time. Concentrate on this. Finished. To concentrate. Concentrate! Finished it. I finished it! And when you do it first time, it's not a problem. Done it now, finished. So everything's been done. Yeah. I agree. Yes. I trust you've done everything, that's alright. So you're gonna have something to drink on yes. now. Yes. I don't know, but I, I think they're trying to get us inside the head of the uh, of this man. But uh, it, it's a it's a sung and acted narration. I think it's a I would call it a narration. I don't know. Reminds me a little bit of a documentary that I heard uh, ten years ago. I don't know when it was, but it was. Uh, I think Sandy, you had a hand in that. Least. I am just who we are. Or was that uh, the, the multi multiple personality disorder? I think maybe Jay Allison or Christina Egloff, and it was about a woman with multiple personality disorder and all her voices woven together. It's an absolutely incredible piece of radio. There was a really, I mean, this was, this was less layered, that one was really, I mean, somebody who had, you know, I don't know, 15 different personalities. You know, I, but, and, but I guess the question for me is, yes, I mean, that's interesting. And uh, that's obviously why they, they would do it in this way 
perhaps in this too, but maybe I take, for, my question for me is now like, you know, do I take narration too much for granted? Do I take my scripts too much for granted? I mean, why shouldn't I sing them? Well, because it would be silly and people would laugh at me. But, but there must be other possibilities other than just reading a script. It's a matter of concentrating, right? Um, I just want to play one final thing and that's it. Um, it's seven minutes long and it's, it's just a piece that, the beginning of a piece that I did uh, three years ago uh, for the anniversary, the, hundred, the centenary of Mar Marconi's first transatlantic radio broadcast. And it was a historical documentary that lasted 50 minutes tracing the birth of radio. And this first section at the beginning of the program, I, my intent was to try and put the listener in a space to listen, to hear sound and radio, perhaps a little bit like people used to back then. Um, and one of the things that I that I, I, I don't know if this, I ask myself this, these questions that, that I, does it work better? I guess I'm saying I think it does. I just don't know how to do it. I think the real challenge, for me anyway, is to try and combine elements. I, this business of my ear falling into the gap when, when Harry Hudimaki does it, does it, drops his levels, that's interesting. What, what do I learn from that? I'm not really quite sure. But there's something about the way that sounds and elements in a documentary strike off each other. And I, and I, I think somehow they work least well when, when everything is sort of flat and this one plus one equals two. And I think they work best, like you know what Eisenstein said about uh, film editing. You know, it's like the dialectical dialectic of editing. Like it's, when it's not, you put two images against each other and then you actually make a catapult you to a third thing. So it's not one plus one equals two, it's one plus one equals five. Um, and, I, and I think ideally if sound and narration and, and, and our voices can, can sort of hit off each other in a, in a non-linear way, um, it ought to provide a kind of a magnetic space for the listener to walk into. I, I don't know if this does that, but this was an attempt to get the listener into a space to listen to a story about the Are we on the air? Are we on the air now? Can you hear me? On the air. Can you hear me now? Can you hear anything? What is on the air? Well, you see, the first actual communication was when one person spoke to another person and they understood what they were saying. And then it goes on for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years. Call. Response. Transmit. Hello? Can you hear? Hello? Can you hear me? Can, can you, you hear, hear me? I can hear you. Receive. What happens if we whisper? Can you hear me now? S. What did they choose, huh? 
They used the letter S because if they used anything with dashes in, they thought that the dots and dashes would run into each other, and therefore the easiest letter to distinguish was S, which is, in Morse code, three dots. The letter S... S for silence. Silence. S for sound. But what was it like then? What was it like then? From the beginnings of long-distance communication with fires on mountaintops and so on, we moved to a number of different things throughout history. In the siege of Paris, they sent messages by carrier pigeon. On the air, waves. What was it like? Can you hear me? Can you hear anything? Call. Response. We get into uh, modern times with Christianity, for instance, bells. People were summoned to church by bells. That was a message being sent. And the bells rang over the hills and the dales, and people heard them and answered the call. In fact, uh, John Betjeman, I think, called his biography Summoned by Bells. <laughs> Before the car, the plane, the radio, the telephone, the telegraph, what was the world like? Was it larger? Did the world feel, did it feel like a larger place to live in? I think the world felt enormous. Turn of the century, and I'm talking about 1800, not 1900. Um, large parts of Africa completely unknown. Mm. The Far East very mysterious. Um, a, a message to any foreign country took weeks. Or maybe it didn't get through at all. Um, ships, once they had, had left port and sailed out into the blue, you had no idea where they were or how they had fared until they arrived at their distant destination. And if, if that was miles away, somewhere like uh, uh, the Far East, then uh, you had to wait uh, months and months before you knew whether your voyage had been successful or not, if you were a shipping merchant. Hmm. Larger. Was there more space between things? Between continents? Between words? Between people? Well, I think people, when they, for instance, a lot of Newfoundlanders left and went to the United States, Boston area and so on, including some of my mother's uh, and father's brothers and sisters. And once they left, they were gone. It wasn't a matter of that we'll be home next year to fly home and see you or anything. They left and they never saw them again. Eventually, the lines disappeared between the families as people died out and their children didn't keep up the contacts. 
my grandfather's sister went off to the States in uh, 1898 and we never heard of them afterwards. Was there more homesickness in the world? More loneliness? Larger. What was in all the space? Imagination? Dreams. And it goes on for there, from there for another 40 minutes. Before we start, I might as well be up. Um, since we're over time, maybe we won't have a discussion, but we can, anybody wants to stay and talk about it, you know, or ask me questions, that's fine. Um, and th I want to say thank you for, for coming and for sitting through all this. And I wanted to leave you with one final question, which is uh, something that stuck in my brain years ago. The French poet named Paul Valéry said, it is, the job of the it is not the job of the poet to tell you that it's raining. It's the job of the poet to make rain. And I wonder, my question is, is that our job as documentary makers?